Hello and welcome to Geek Sweat. We are the podcast series for your film news, reviews and interviews. Our segments include Cult TV, Review Sweat, Hot Topic, Trailer Talk and Inspiration Interview. You can find us on several different podcast channels, including Acast, Spotify, Spreaker, Castbox FM, Player FM, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Today, we are doing a recording during the coronavirus pandemic era, and we are recording live and remotely in areas of London per presenter. Please enjoy this episode. Welcome back to Geek Sweat and the inspiration interview with Ed Stoppard, part two. It seems like a lot of um, uh, a lot of questions or a lot of the question in society is now bubbled back up to the surface to kind of start holding more people to account. And this seems to be a theme that comes up in, well, at least when I see it in science fiction a lot. So I'd like to ask you, Ed, are you a big fan of science fiction yourself? Truth be told, not, like as a genre, I'm fine with it. Mm. Um, and look, you know, I've already said that Blade Runner is one of my favourite films. Yeah. And there are, you know, a number of other science fiction films which I think are terrific. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, I, I, like, I like just great narrative. Mm. That's what interests me is great storytelling. And I don't really care whether it takes place on the, you know, on the high plains or in outer space. So whether it, you know, I'll, I'll be just as happy watching, you know, Solaris as Spartacus. I don't care as long as the story is good. It is well told, um, you know, with good filmmakers and good, good actors. Um, But I'm certainly not averse to science fiction. I mean, some elements, I've got a bit of a kind of geeky thing about me, which is probably my propensity for playing mathematicians. Yeah. Um, and so some of the geekiness about, I like some of the sort of geekiness of science fiction. Mm. You know, like, you know, when the Millennium Falcon goes into like light speed or whatever. Yeah. I do sort of think, well, I wonder how they avoid like crashing into shit. You know? <laughs> I'm not sure that's what you meant, but. Um, I, I always assumed they somehow got super reflexes. Yeah, <laughs> actually, that came up recently in, um, I think, Ryan Johnson's film. I'm not sure if it was The Last Jedi or The Force Awakens, but basically the Millennium Falcon, for like the last 25 years of cinema history, it's always been able to shoot into hyperspeed and not hit anything. And I think in one of the recent Star Wars films, they used the kind of the hyperspeed momentum of the film to kind of crash into another... Um, imperial ship because they didn't have the um, ammunition to kind of shoot it down. So that got. Well, so they like they like go really close to it at high speed and like what and like bump yeah. it. And they and they've never used that kind of trope before. But yeah, to kind of just rip a hole into this spaceship. But they've never used that trope in like twenty five years. And that got well, that doesn't deep. work either because there's no <laughs> there's no there's no air in space. There's no atmosphere. So there's no such thing as like a shockwave. Yeah. So there, there was this, the energy. The energy can't. There's nothing. Yeah. No medium for the energy to travel through. So that I'm sorry. Sorry, that just simply doesn't Ed, pan out. You you would be perfect for the Reddit community on that subject. That's ridiculous. So, sorry, so, that's the, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Well, Fucking hell! I thought, I okay, thought one, we're not going to tell Ryan Johnson, so you're okay. <laughs> I thought the one with Hayden Christensen was stupid, but bloody yeah. hell, that's even more stupid. 
Well, actually, I want to I, I want to go into a bit of a geeky um, uh, grave or ditch review on um, yeah. sci-fi tropes in film because there was three things that I identified, and I wanted to know if anything like this has piqued your interest in film. So, in a, the Terminator film, there's a science yeah. fiction like loophole that um, is it John Connor is in the yeah. future trying to save his mother but he sends somebody from the future to save his mother from the Terminator who makes yeah. love to his mother, who eventually becomes yeah. his father, which becomes <clears throat> this kind of strange um, kind of loop. I'm not sure what the scientific word is. And then there's another paradox in uh, Back to the Future where a lot of people kind of skip over the fact that the first time that we see Doc and Marty physically meet is actually in the car park where um, Doc's about to kind of, test his um, uh, nuclear power propelled time machine for the first time. And so then we have to ask the question, is the first time Doc and Marty met, was that actually in 1955 or was it in the car park or was it another time? Was it constantly being rewritten because they keep going back and forth in time? And then the third thing, which is um, slightly confrontational or controversial, is in Inception, which is the spin and totem at the end of the film that never falls down when Leonardo DiCaprio finally gets to go home at the end of all of the dream inside a dream inside a dream inside a dream missions. And we never get to tell whether he's actually still in the dream or not. So is there like a science fiction moment that you wish had been resolved one way or the other that you've seen in film? Because you mentioned Blade Runner with Mm. the, is Deckard a replicant or not as well? I mean, I sort of figured that he isn't a replicant. Yeah. Just because the evidence in the film seems to point to him not being a replicant. Um, But look, time travel doesn't work. I don't think that's a controversial statement. I think a physicist would probably say something like, it's because you can't travel, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Isn't that one of the arguments or something? But also, look, I mean, the, the whole back to the future rabbit hole I mean, that's, that just, that's just emblematic of, of why we're certain time travel doesn't work. It's because of like, well, yeah, exactly. How, in order for Marty to, you know, uh, in order for Doc to have the letter, that means that Marty had to have been back in 1955. But in order for Marty to be back in 1955, then Doc had to have in the car park in 1985. And so in order for 1985, and now let's all just kill ourselves. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, time travel... And definitively doesn't work. I liked Inception, but I do remember at some point just going, oh, I'm just going to watch this film and not, not like worry about it too much. Um, I'll tell you, there is something actually. It's not, like a, it's not like a paradox that needs to be resolved or anything, but it is just something where I went, sorry, have I missed something here? Have you seen a film? It's a Danny Boyle film, I think, called Sunshine. Yeah, yeah, where they've got to go to the other side of the galaxy or the other side. They've got to come to close to the sun and make it explode so they yeah, can well, re- so regenerate Cillian Mur- the sun again. Murphy plays like the, the pilot of this ship. There's a bunch of them on the ship. And basically the idea is that, bizarrely, the sun has just suddenly started to die. Yeah. And that we realise that if we can't get the sun kick-started, Earth is going to die. Yeah. So... <clears throat> We previously sent one spaceship yeah. with fuel, in inverted commas, on to crash into the sun to, like, give it a kickstart. 
Yeah. And somehow it didn't work. We lost contact. Didn't work. So we sent a second one and we're on the second ship. That's the film. And then you get there and and listen, it's a good film. It looks amazing. It's a good film. But I was sitting there going, guys, it's the fucking sun. (laughs) I mean, this is like kind of going, oh shit, global warming. The ice caps are melting. Sea level is going to rise by 10 meters. And then Mm. walking down to like the beach at Brighton with a sponge or a bucket and going, that's all right. I'll bail it out. Don't worry. We'll be like, <laughs> what could we, po- we could literally have like somehow managed to throw the moon at yeah. the sun. Mm-hmm. And, and there wouldn't have been enough fuel in that to kickstart yeah. the sun. So the idea that we built a spaceship and that by somehow crashing that into the, I mean, it's not that, you know, that, yeah, that was, that, it was that film. It never overcame that obstacle for you. It's, yeah, you know what? It somehow didn't. It tarred it. I mean, it, I like that film, but um, that that was something that always just sort of slightly. I mean, I must admit, I'm boring to watch films and stuff with because I I do this thing which probably lots of us do. People who work in this business is pick it apart and go. Well, hang on a second. That doesn't. What the fuck. And then you can kind of see where the screenwriters or the director or the producers have sort of cheated it. Or sometimes where they haven't even bothered to try and to try and cheat it. And I get a bit cross about that because in fairness to Danny Boyle, Mm. there's no film unless you, you know, suspend your disbelief around this one critical point. Right. Mm -hmm. So in fairness to him, that's the, that's sort of the only time where I find that sort of thing acceptable. Where you go, look, we have to do this, otherwise there's no film. All right, and I quite enjoyed the film, so I'm down yeah. with that. Yeah. But the bits where inconvenient bits of storytelling, where they just gloss over it because they just can't be asked with the science to mm. to 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 do the legwork to 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 join mm. the dots and make it work. They can't be bothered, or else they realise actually they've just done something stupid. Mm. And they're kind of loath to admit their idiocy, so they just pretend it isn't there. That annoys me. Mm. Mm. I mean, so you like your suspension of disbelief kept to a minimum, as so to speak. No, I'm all right. I mean, I'm actually really good to watch a film with, even though I just said I'm annoying to watch a film with. I'm also good to watch a film with because I just watch it, as it were, in real time. Mm. I'm never kind of going, oh, he's the murderer. It's going to be him. I don't do that. Yeah. Um, I just watched the film. And so when it's revealed that, oh, yeah, I, he was the murderer, I'm always kind of like, oh, my God, he was the murderer. <laughs> and the people around me going, yeah, did you not work that out in the first yeah. reel? What the fuck? Yeah. Where were you? <laughs> so, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I just, yeah, I, I'm fine with suspending my disbelief, unless it's for something stupid that the writers couldn't be bothered to figure out themselves. Six cents? Did you work that one out? No, God, no. <laughs> that was a total shock. <laughs> and that was a great twist yeah. but then that was a great twist and actually in fairness to them that's M. Night Shyamalan yeah yeah. in fairness now, now I haven't watched any of his other films because um, I made the mistake of reading his film reviews oh. which just lambasted him for being a one hit pony like, just being what a one trick pony so to speak. Well, certainly a one-trick pony, but then, you know, a one-trick pony just kept falling over um, mm. when he tried to do his trick. I mean, apparently some of his other films are just mm. dreadful. I mean, embarrassing. Mm. 
Yeah. No need for us to add to that. It's been said. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like, this is not front page news. It's not going to yeah. like yeah. set Twitter on fire. Anyway. Yeah. But, um, I've heard that split redeems him a little bit, but I suppose that's up to the critics. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But the Sixth Sense, Sixth Sense was good. Um, uh, I mean, to be honest, it's not even a sci-fi thing that it's more, you know, there's a kind of thing in screenwriting where, what is the movie where Brian Cox is playing like a screenwriting lecturer? Adaptation. Adaptation. Adaptation, isn't it? Adaptation yeah. with Nicolas Cage. And then he's giving the lecture and he kind of finishes his lecture to students by saying, and don't any of you bring in a deus ex machina. And, yeah. you know, it's that thing where as a writer you go, oh, shit, I really painted myself into a corner. Yeah. Aliens, yeah. that'll get me out of this fix. And suddenly aliens yeah. rock up and you're like, oh, flip it, God. Yeah, yeah. You just couldn't be asked to go back and do another draft, could you, and fix it. Yeah. That stuff annoys me. And I can't off the top of my head think of, I mean, I've, there are probably numerous examples, but I can't think of any. If I think of any, I'll tell you. I want to yeah. just come, before Dom asks, asks his next question, I just want to come back on the Blade Runner thing. I, I believe Deckard is a replicant for the following reason. Um, because he dreams about the white horse. The unit, uh, don't, come on, the not the unit, and then, he, and then he, he does the origami. He does the origami unicorn and he leaves it on the table. And uh, the detective, who's um, Edward, played by Edward James Olmos, I think he's, he plays a character called Gaff, he's constantly making the origami unicorn. So... I feel that does he in, only make does he only make the unicorn? Yeah, yeah. So basically, Edward James Olmos plays this kind of other detective who's working. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember. Detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. So, so every, Decker's job. Yeah, yeah. And every time he kind, they kind of meet up. He kind of messes around with some paper and he leaves the unicorn on the table. But then there was one time when Deckard's about to leave his flat for the last yeah. time because he's on the run, yeah. and he makes the unicorn himself. So the and he's been dreaming. Wait, of, Deckard makes it. Yeah, yeah, and he's been dreaming of the. Um, Are you sure about that? Yeah, yeah, because he's been having a dream about the white horse. So the no, idea I know he is has that, a dream. Of, I know he has a dream about the white horse, but I don't remember Deckard making a unicorn. Yeah, because it's in his. Deckard arrives back. And it's it on a piano. Yeah. No, but does it? Are you talking about he steps? He's like steps on one. He realizes that. That, that detective Gaff has been, if it, is it Gaff? Whatever his name is. Yeah, the character's called Gaff. Yeah. And he thinks that he's killed Rachel. Yeah. So Deckard runs in the apartment thinking that Rachel's been murdered by that. No, because the, when, when rem- the way I remember it, um, or it might be because I might have watched a different cut because I remember seeing, I've seen oh, quite a few different cuts. Oh, maybe in the director's cut. Maybe, director's maybe cut. Deckard makes one in the director's cut. Yeah. So in the director's cut, it's like, um, I'm not sure if he finds it on the floor or if it's already on the table, but it's like the last thing he looks at before he leaves the flat and he goes away with Rachel and then the door's closed and then the two of them are on the run as replicants. But I think um, the blade is... Is kind of the last clue that Deckard needs to realise that he's also a replicant, but they they're all dreaming the same dream. There's like a there's a small community that he's coming to connection with, and they've all been dreaming the same dream. And the only way to prove it was the the origami unicorn. Sorry, who's been dreaming the same dream? The all the replicants. The, yeah, yeah, because they they share a similar program. That's why almost. That's why Gap is creating the um, origami unicorn, and that's why he dreamed it. 
But the idea is, but I mean, the thing that makes Rachel special is that she has memories, implants. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> Deckard seemingly was working as a Blade Runner for years before yeah. he retired. Yeah. And then came out of retirement for the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, for the for the cause, you know, for the duration of the film, that part, you know, that narrative. So that would mean that his memories were implants and that they've been implanting memories in replicants years before Rachel. Mm. Also, Deckard doesn't seem to have any of the physical attributes of a replicant. All the mm. replicants beat the shit out of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has only he has the physical attributes of a human. Yeah, um, I'm not buying. I mean, I like the idea of him being a replicant. Don't get me wrong. I think that's quite a nice one. Yeah, I think it's tenuous. I think it's tenuous. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's tenuous. Okay, yeah. I'll let you be the judge of that as you're our guest today. Um, okay, here's a good segue. Yeah, uh, dictators, Cyrus. <laughs> is the villain in one of my favourite sci-fi movies called... The Matrix? Oh, God, come on, guys. Not Con Air, that's not sci-fi. Cyrus the Virus, John Malkovich. Uh, I'm trying to think. Wow, that is a poser. Alan Rickman's greatest screen performance. And an early sci-fi. Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest. Oh, yeah. Genius. Of yeah. Genius film. Beautiful I, piece of film. Yeah. Great I, piece of filmmaking. Yeah, that film's quite crazy because it's um you've actually got like a sci-fi queen in it in terms of um, Sigourney Weaver, considering that she's done all yeah. the alien films. And obviously it slaps of Star Trek as well. Mm. And it's great that they've managed to twist the Comic Con convention fan into the story as yeah. well. But yeah, yeah, that's pretty story. It's a, it's a work of genius, that film. Mm-hmm. It, I think it, they said they were going to do a sequel. Uh, they, they're planning yeah, on I, doing a I sequel. I mean, I would be there. I would abs- I'd literally be there. You yeah. know, I'd, I'd be there going, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I really would. Um, it could have been a car crash. And instead, it's, yeah. it's timeless for the and ages. I think, it's, I think it's one of the first, like, genuine introductions of Sam Rockwell on cinema yes, screen is. as well. It is, yeah. it is. It is. And he, ste- and he steals the scenes he's in. Because he's Sam Rockwell and he's the best. So, you know, wow, amazing. Have to respond to that. No response. There's no response you know, to that. I, I, no possible I'm response a, to that. Just let I'm actually, sit there. Do you know why I'm, I'm shocked? I'm actually shocked that I'm speaking to Ed Stoppard and that you've referenced Galaxy Quest as one of your favourite films as well, because that's what's blowing my mind at the moment. Is it? Okay, well, I'm yeah. glad to have surprised you. <laughs> And, and maybe, dare I say, inspired you, Trevor? Uh, definitely inspired as well. Inspired, surprised, and everything else ending in ED. Great. Um, should we talk <laughs> about um, um, some new projects, perhaps? Sure. Uh, let's do it. Brave New Worlds. Um, were you, uh, you must have been familiar with the book before having a role in Brave New World. Was it something that inspired you as a project? <clears throat> I'll tell you, um, I, was, uh, shoot, I was shooting a TV show in South Africa and my agent emailed me and said, you know, do you want to do this role in Brave New World? I sort of wanted to just go, yes, but he sent over, I think, the first two episodes. And I read the f- started reading it there and then in my hotel room in Cape Town. 
and I, my, te- you know, my attention span can t- tend towards the short. So I, so I started reading the first episode of Brave New World in my hotel room in Cape Town, and just read the whole thing straight through, and then immediately picked up the second episode and read that one straight through, and emailed my agent back two hours after he'd emailed me, and I just wrote one word. I just wrote yes. Mm. And he emailed back and went, you've never done that. There's always something that you're moaning about, or there's always some problem, or there's always a question, or is that you've never, ever just Mm. come straight back and said yes. Mm. And that was in part because, you know, I read the book as a sort of affected teenager in the 1980s. Um, What were your impressions of the book? When you, well, when you first read it. it kind of, it's, you know, the first half of it kind of blew my mind. Mm. Um, you know, the second half, when he kind of sort of, trying to remember, but he sort of gets into the kind of philosophy more I was less interested in, but the world, the dystopian world he created mm. just was astonishing. Um, so, but the scripts for the TV show which is about to come out, um, was so brilliant. And actually, in fact, I hadn't, because I hadn't read the book for 30 years. You'll see when you see the, the TV show that um, David Weiner, who's our showrunner and lead writer, he's expanded the story. Okay. But he's done it so seamlessly and with such kind of, love and rigor and diligence that I read it and just assumed that this, that what we were portraying in the first two episodes was, was absolutely how things are portrayed in the book. And then when I went, wow. I bought a copy in Cape town, cause I thought I'd better read it. <laughs> and I read it and went, hang on a second, where's all that? And realized that actually that was all David's creation. And you know, as I've sort of said, uh, uh, th- you know, throughout this podcast, um, or, or alluded to, the quality of the writing is is what it's all about for me, and the quality of the writing on Brave New World is just brilliant. It's mm. some of the best writing I've ever read, and certainly ever worked on. And you could tell from just you know the narrative description and stage directions that and look if you're wanting to create new london 2020 you know with the power of vfx that we have at our fingertips now's the time to flip and do it i mean really you know it's, sure. it's a, it must be just you know a, a kind of wonderful time to be making sci-fi period mm. um so i was so excited to do it i was so excited to do it and also because you know with the british cast and we filmed it in mostly we filmed it in cardiff we filmed some in dungeness um Mm. savage lands we filmed in dungeness and it was just something i thought this is one of those jobs where you know looking back over my career it's one of those ones I'm going to be so proud to have been involved in. Sure. And it absolutely was the case. And, you know, this, the design, set design, costume design, hair and makeup design, 
was phenomenal. It looks amazing on the trailers. It looks, yeah. it was just amazing. You know, you know when, you know, if it looks good on the monitor, you know that, you know, you're in good shape. Sure. I'll tell you something, because of the nature of this podcast, I'll tell you something which, which really blew my mind. <clears throat> something I'd never seen before. And it was this. Uh, there's a shot at the beginning of the first episode, very early in the first episode, where we stay with a character and the character moves through this building and gets into an elevator. And I guess this is this a, well, it's a bit of a spoiler alert, I guess. But anyway, we, we, actually not really. It's sort of in the trailer. Anyway. anyway, we see a vista of New London, right? Sure. And there, is, there are similar shots in the trailer, so I'm not really telling anyone something that they don't already know. Uh, and she's in this elevator, and the elevator is kind of sort of glass-walled, so you can see, she can see out over New London, right? From a very kind of high elevated position, da-da-da. So when the actress, when Jess did this shot, we're on a soundstage in Cardiff, right? Right. And we're walking through this incredible set that they've built, and she steps into this lift, which moved a little bit on hydraulics, but yeah. it wasn't a working lift, right? Well, it is, right. A, you know, it is make-believe, after all. On the monitor, right, the monitor being... The, essentially the television screen, the monitor that the director is sitting behind with his headphones and he's watching what the actors are doing, right? That's the monitor. On the monitor, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, who I'm 99% sure did the VFX, yeah. they had beforehand created the VFX, right? For those who don't know, what normally happens is you do lots of stuff in front of a green screen. And then months and months later, people like my brother build the VFX world, whatever it is, an explosion, an alien planet, whatever the hell it is, they do it afterwards, much, much later, and then stick it in. We're on the set. We're, we're shooting the scene now. It's happening now. And on the monitor yeah. is all the VFX. So when Jess steps into the lift... And the lift starts going up and there's a kind of lighting special effect to sort of yeah. make it feel like she's going upwards or whatever. Sunlight changing, all of that. That's in its own way very, very clever. Sa um, uh, Owen, the director, is going, OK, Jess, so now we're about to come up above the side of the building. And yes, and now you turn it, you look over, so you can see the skyline, there are towers. And he's just describing what wow. he's seeing on his monitor. Yeah. And she's yeah. on the, it's hard to describe, but essentially on his monitor Real is time the things you see in the final show. Amazing. I mean, tidied up and enhanced and da-da-da. But essentially, he's watching the shot as it will appear to people when they watch it in a fortnight's time. Wow. I'm getting very sort of excited about this because, yeah. you know, when I first started 20 years ago, yeah. we, we shot everything on 35-millimeter film, for Christ's sake. Mm. So the idea of having a monitor with the VFX already on it so the director can see how the actress will integrate with the finished VFX. It still blows my mind. It still is like witchcraft to me. Yeah. And essentially, it's just a question of getting your ducks in a row because obviously 
you know, the studio has gone to VFX, to ILM and said, look, you see this shot at the beginning of episode one, just do the VFX. We know, don't worry, we know when we're the finished VFX and da da da, but give us the VFX so that when we're shooting it in situ, we can talk her through it and we've got a clearer idea of what she should do to work in conjunction with it. So they've built the VFX, they've done it, you know, uh, hundreds of man hours to build this VFX so that we could have it on the set. That was, that just flipping blew my mind. Now, for all I know, Christopher Nolan only works that way. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Maybe he does. But I'd never seen that before. I've never heard of anyone working like that. I've never seen it before. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, maybe they'd had it on, on the set on a previous day, on a different shot or something. Because I was slightly running around doing what I'm doing now, going, he's got the VFX on his mother. He's got the VFX on his mother. And everyone's going, yeah, no, it's crazy, isn't it? I was like, he's got the VFX on his mother. Um... Yeah, it was astonishing. So, was so do, does this mean that this particular project has is one of those projects that's crossed a threshold of having real Maybe. time, real time VFX? I mean, so it's the, possible the power powers yeah. back in the hand of a director rather Maybe. than Maybe. editing Maybe. by six months down the line. Yeah, I mean, it may be that you know, five or six years from now, I'll be shooting something, and the director will be going. Why are the VFX not on my monitor? <laughs> what? Oh, Christ, those assholes. Yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. tell them if it's not there next time, they're fine, you know, and it will be standard. I don't know. Wow. But, but I, like I say, I'd never seen it before, and yeah. it blew my mind. Incredible. And, and look, you know, there's a lot of VFX in this show, um, but the set designs are so beautiful and the costume designs are wonderful and look and it's obviously a show like brave new world it really really is about creating a world mm. and it's about creating a world that feels removed from our experience mm. but also feels tangible yeah. feels that something that we can relate to something that might be possible and i've done a couple of like instagram posts <laughs> where I sort of joked about how, you know, a, a show about some kind of dystopian future where, you know, the elite are oppressing, you know, the masses that has no relevance in, in our, our, the, uh, our present world. But it really does feel astonishingly timely. Mm. I mean, it felt timely a year ago when we first started to make it. Yeah. But the, the stuff that's gone down, even just in the last two months and, so, and in the last six months, you go, oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, for me, pressing, as, you know. for me as a science fiction fan, I think there's like a heady cocktail of things coming together with this series because um, it's, it's featuring a, an actor called Harry Lloyd, who yeah. I became more familiar with in a TV series, which has become defunct now, called Counterpart where it was a story about um, a spy in Germany who realises yeah. there's two parallel dimensions and Harry Lloyd is kind of the, the lead um, supervisor in his agency trying to keep it quiet. And for him to come away from that series into another science fiction, and then you've got mm -hmm. the fact that um, you don't often see sci-fi particularly futuristic sci-fi portrayed in London specifically, normally gets relocated to America, such as War of the Worlds, or yeah. in a kind of far-off desolate space. 
Then you've got the issue that Westworld is no longer on our screens anymore. And it's going to be like a really big vacant hole that needs to be filled. And Westworld, again, is a, it's actually a, a book from like decades beforehand. Yeah. And talking about a dystopian future. And it was expanded upon um, to create a wider world. Because I think in Westworld you had um, sci-fi world. And I think Michael Crichton did a sequel to it but he didn't do what was we now know as season three. And so like Brave New World is kind of, it's following in the footsteps of um, some great science fiction in dystopian futures, but it's also crossing a new Maybe boundary. Maybe Handmaid's Tale still. too. Um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if Handmaid's Tale is a sci-fi. I haven't seen that one. It's well, a dystopian. It's maybe not, oh, it's dystopian. not quite science fiction. But it's dystopian. Um, I mean, but it's like world building because the book yeah. itself has less than the series. They had to expand oh, on it to create a sure. whole world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, my wife and I have just started watching it as Hammer our kind stuff. of our next series to watch. Cool. And and she had read the book as a, a teenager. Yeah. And and actually, there were elements. She said, "I don't think this is in the book. This is all new stuff." And I went. And actually, yeah. when I was talking about how David uh, Weiner on Brave New World had seamlessly incorporated his new narrative, yeah, I was, actually had the same thought watching last night, thinking, "You know what? They've yeah. done that very well because you so, never would have." Yeah. That strange. When you were saying that, I was thinking Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. 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 True. So, I mean, what are your hopes for a Brave New World? Because, like I was trying to say before. There's the Westworld gap. You've got Harry Lloyd from Counterpart. And you've got the fact that sci-fi is not normally um, shown in London. And even the current circumstances and events of this kind of political turmoil um, between the class systems and government has now become a hot topic. What are your hopes and expectations for this series? Well, I mean, beyond the obvious, um, you know, which is global success and a whole cabinet full of awards, um, which I think, frankly, would be deserved. Um, I hope it just, I, I, listen, I hope it just resonates. And I hope that people appreciate it on, you know, a number of levels. They ap appreciate it on the level of it being a piece of art, because I think visually it's going to be absolutely stunning. Um, that they appreciate it on the level of storytelling and taking a source material and building on that source material to make something greater than its original. And also that it will resonate because people will go, yeah, hang on a second. This is feeling a little less science fiction-y and a little more science reality. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean... The, you know, one. You know, to quote Shakespeare, uh, you know, one of the roles of art is to hold the mirror up to nature, and it feels like right now, you know, we could all do with doing some good hard staring in the goddamn mirror. Mm. And you know, I don't think the brave new world. You know, when the history of twenty twenty is written, I'd be surprised if you know there's a big section on the impact of brave new world. However. <laughs> If it's just if it just makes a few people kind of go, hang on a second, yeah, actually, Jesus, he was onto something, wasn't he? That, uh, that, 
Huxley guy. Um, Aldous Huxley. I mean, I've read his uh, Doors of Perception. He's got um, right. He's fascinatingly, fascinatingly like ahead of his time, considering yeah, yeah. the uh, yeah, subject yeah. I mean, that he's know. prepared to explore. <laughs> I mean, although in fairness, I mean, in the thirties. Sorry, Ed. Could you just stop for one second and uh, could you just take that answer once again? Because you just said, in fairness, I just lost you. You went kind of electronic for a Christian. second. Hold on a minute. Uh, I was, you sure? In fairness, um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Huxley, he wrote Brave New World in the 30s. Um, and, you know, if he'd written it, you know, after the Second World War and after the Iron Curtain fell, um, then, you know, you might say that, you know, he was kind of less visionary, but in fairness, he was astonishingly prescient. Um, and in fairness, Jesus, and, and in fairness <laughs> again, um, Margaret Atwood, you know, we were watching Handmaid's Tale last night going, holy God, when did she write this? Because she, she saw the writing on the wall. Yeah. And, you know, um, with the rise of um, evangelical, the evangelical Christian movement in the States and, and, fund, and you know, fundamentalist conservatism and the rest of it, you go, actually, again, when she wrote it, people were probably like, "Whoa, Margaret, what have you been smoking?" But yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. watching twenty, go TV show to make that so clear because the opening of the show is clearly set in the present day. Yeah, then... yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Ed, is if it's not too difficult for you. Could we tiptoe through the spoiler minefield and ask you a bit about your character in Brave New World and uh, tell us a little bit more about the director, I think it's called? Oh, about my and, character? And your char yeah, because I think your character's called director or the director. Sorry, Ed, did you hear the question? Um, uh, Trevor, you froze a bit there. Yeah, I think so, I, I did hear the question. Okay, um, <clears throat> do you want to ask the question so, again so we can get it recorded? So, do, yeah, do you mind you if I ask the question one more time? Just give us a sec. Sure. Okay. Do you, can you hear me clearly now? Yeah. Thank you. So, Ed, if we could just tiptoe through the spoiler minefield, could you tell us a bit more about the character that you play in Brave New World? Uh, so yeah, so in Brave New World, I play a character called the director, and um, <clears throat> his title is... Uh, the director of hatcheries and conditioning. And he's a senior. And for those of you who don't know, um, the society uh, the Brave New World is set in, the utopian part of it, um, all the whole of society um, is divided up into strata. At the top are the alphas, and at the bottom are the epsilons. And the epsilons are kind of like worker bees they're sort of like drones and you know the alphas are the elites and the director is one of the alphas and he's an extremely important and powerful 
member of this society in a, a very powerful position within the society. Um, and he is the superior, the boss of the protagonist, Bernard. Um, and he's kind of his nemesis. He's Bernard's nemesis. And initially, um, you know, having talked about obstacles for characters to overcome, um, one of the major obstacles Bernard has to overcome is the director's antagonism towards him. And without kind of revealing too much, even for those people who've read the book, um, yes, uh, the director and Bernard, um, there is a certain amount of sort of confrontation between them. Uh, Bernard is a kind of aberration within this perfect society, which sort of offends the sensibilities of the director, but also poses a potential sort of threat to the stability of, of the society. So, um, yes, the first part of the story, um, the director is a kind of driver for Bernard and that gets uh, resolved. Um, but, um, yeah, he is, he's sort of completely emblematic of this society. He's, you know, um, and that society, um, you know, bears some sort of striking similarities to a kind of, you know, to all of those false utopias, you know, Stalinist and Maoist and fascist. Um, and just like, you know, and like The Handmaid's Tale, actually, thinking about it, um, there's a, a whole lot of willful blindness and indoctrination and brainwashing and the rest of it. And, uh, you know, he is as a senior member of that society, almost is by definition a somewhat knowing malevolent part of it. Um, so that was good. So I had, I had, I had good subtext. I had good knowledge. <laughs> so I was happy about that. Um, and actually, and just to sort of expand into the realms of, you know, filmmaking in general, um, Owen Harris, who, shot the first two episodes. So he was the director of the first two episodes, um, the literal director. He directed the shows. Uh, those, that person, you know, he has the very important role of creating the show, of creating the look of the show in, in conjunction with the showrunner and heads of department and, uh, you know, a bunch of other people. But, you know, the, the director, the, the principal director on a TV show is the man or woman who directs the first, generally two episodes. Yeah. And Owen, I, he's one of the directors I'm, I most admire that I've worked with over the years. Uh, and, he's, and I wish I could always work with directors like Owen. And the reason I say that is because he enjoyed directing actors and he knew how to direct actors because you know obviously the director's job is to say right let's put the camera here and let's put this lens on it um and you know let's have this actor move from here to here 
and hopefully they'll be very collaborative with the actors, with the camera department, with the director of photography in making those decisions. Quite often they're not very collaborative. It's just the way it goes. Um, but beyond that, in terms of the actors, I see the director's job as making me better, right? Sure. I will bring something and I sort of try to bring as much as I possibly can to the table. But it's up to the director to take what I'm offering and enhance it and embellish it uh, and, or, or, or pair it back and refine it and simplify it. But uh, the, the goal he, he and I are working towards is to make Ed better. <laughs> it's that simple. Um, and it ha doesn't happen very often, I have to be honest, where I work with a director who A, has that intention and B, understands how it might be possible to do it. And Owen was one of them. And it was such a pleasure because it was essentially, it was like working in the rehearsal room of a play where you have four weeks and the whole point is to try stuff and be playful and not worry about stuff not working because we're all just standing here in our trainers, you know, with tape on the floor, yeah. you know, marking out the edges of the stage. And so who gives a shit? And Owen sort of had an, more of that attitude. And I think it probably helps when you have a very large budget because yeah. then you worry a bit less about going a bit more slowly and stuff and taking maybe 40 minutes longer on this scene than you might otherwise have imagined. And da, da, da. But you know what? He did. He yeah. did shoot eight, nine, ten takes on a setup. Mm. And he would come and see me after each take. And again, making, making film and television, it's expensive. Sure. It's expensive in a whole host of imaginative ways that you and I could not even dream up. But one of the principal ways it's expensive is, is it, it's expensive to have 127 people who are all paid quite a lot of money, even if they're relatively low down the food chain, to stand around doing nothing. Hmm. You don't want a film crew standing around doing nothing. Yeah. So for a director to come up, and take an actor and walk over to the side of the set and talk to the actor for three or four minutes. If he does that after every one of nine takes, that's like 45 minutes of, of highly paid people standing around with their hands in their pockets. Sure. You don't really want to be doing that a lot. Owen didn't seem to bother him at all. And yeah. as an actor inside, it was, I was like doing dancing a jig the whole time, partly because I like the sort of anarchic... <laughs> attitude of yep this is costing a lot of money but we're going to do it anyway but yeah. b just as an actor that's the bit i like is the collaborating is the sharing ideas is the going right okay i see what you're doing with that but how about if we tried this mm. um that's the play bit of it um and owen fully embraced that and i saw him do it with other actors and I just felt warm and cuddly inside every time he did it. And, and, the, and the sort of proof is in the pudding in the respect that the performance, it'd be lovely if you could see these things, mm. but the performance I gave in the first take is what Ed has brought to the table. And hopefully it's not awful, but mm. 
the final take, the one he prints and puts into the edit, won't look like the first take. Sure. Um, quite often, you know, the truth, truth be told, certainly at my level of, you know, if you're working for David Fincher, it's different. But, you know, if you're just, you know, doing good stuff for the BBC and, you know, various American channels or whatever, what normally happens is you do three takes or two takes if you don't cock it up and you know it won't come as a huge surprise to learn that take three looks an awful lot like take one Mm. you as the actor might try something a bit different but basically it's only different because you as the actor have tried something either decided to try something different or in the moment you've done something a bit different but really so you've taken the initiative but the director hasn't helped you or guided you you've brought something to the table and the director has gone yeah great did anyone fall over? You know, you know, were there any like Pitches, planes yeah. flying through the back of that shop? No, good, great, check it, move on. You know, that's sort of how it goes. Um, and uh, Owen, I mean, listen, if you if one were to phone Owen Harris, he might go, "Is that what he said?" Well, yeah. that is true, but it's only true because. What he was doing in the first take was so awful that I knew I had to do something to try and drag a decent performance out of this guy. And it took eight or nine takes to get there. That was what that was about. That's possibly what was going on. I'm sure he wouldn't say that. He probably wouldn't because he was also a very nice guy. But, But it was about him going, no, no, no. I know what I want. You've got part of the way there. Come with me and we'll we'll get to where I think we need to get to. And in fairness to him, quite often where he wanted me to get was not what had been asked for in the script. And again, great credit to David Weiner, the, the lead writer. He didn't kind of go, oh, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. In the script, it says this, and now you're doing that. He was like, yeah, it's great. I lo- yeah, that looks great. I love it. Um, and again, it's about collaboration, but even more importantly... It's about people who either come without an ego or park their ego. And, you know, you can, you can produce a very mediocre end product because people aren't willing to get out of the way of their ego. And that can mean actors, directors, writers. Um, generally, it means those three parts of a, of a film crew. Um, you know, and, and it's worth just remembering that, you know, all of our end goals is to just produce the best thing we can produce. And the chances of you, sir or madam, sir, madam, always knowing what's best, let's be honest, it's pretty unlikely, isn't it? Mm. You don't look like Orson Welles to me, so I'm going to go with you don't always know. Um, so, um, but in order to do that, everyone has to park their ego for it to be really collaborative. And it doesn't mean that everyone just kind of goes, yes, sir, yes, sir, and tugs their forelock. You can absolutely push back and say, well, hang on a second. Why am I doing, because haven't I just done this? Or, well, that doesn't make sense to me because of this. Yeah. True, but don't 
forget there's all fine i see how that works or the person goes oh yeah no that's true fine yeah go back go back you're i'm always delighted when i work with a director who says things like no i was wrong go back to what you were doing before not because it makes me kind of go yes i was correct <laughs> it makes me realize that their ego isn't the overriding factor in how mm. we're going to do this and I must also admit, and I really, really do mean this, and it's not sort of false modesty. And again, it's how I'm wired, you know, that kind of cerebral thing. As long as I know why I'm doing what I'm doing within the scene, I'm happy. I don't care if the floor runner or one of the electricians says, yeah, but isn't it because of this? Whoever gives me the knowledge I need to truthfully inhabit this moment, I don't care who, who provides that. Generally speaking, it is the director or the writer. Um, and, you know, it's not unusual for me to say something like, brilliant, yeah, thank you, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, now, all yeah, great, makes sense. I know exactly what you mean now. Cool, let's turn over, let's do it. Um, and I, I'm, I, those are my favorite moments when I'm filming are the moments of elucidation where someone opens a door for me or switches on a light in the dark room I'm fumbling around in. Because, you know, there are always times when you're fumbling around a dark room and you're thinking, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And in that moment, you want someone preferably the director, but as I say, you'll take the fucking catering department if it comes down to it, to step in and go, you remember this. You know, it's Polanski walking in and going, it's just you and Roy. Yeah. It's just you and Roy chatting. That is a, that is a person coming in and switching on a light and going, look, it's fine, see? And so, and Owen was just brilliant at that. And, and, he, and you know what? He was even more than that. Because the first thing you do is go, hang on a second, and he'd switch on a light, and you go, oh, right. And then you come in and go, what if we walk through this door? What's in this room? And you go, oh, I don't know. Should we go in there? And you go in and go, oh, shit. Well, let's, let's try this for a bit. And you do that for a couple of takes. And then you come in and go, hang on, I've just found this other room. Come with me, and let's see if this room is interesting. And we go in and go, well, it's different. Let's try it. And then we'll know if it's interesting and you do that. And, and, you know, and you'd spend 45 minutes on a single setup, which on another show you'd shoot two takes and you'd be out of there in seven minutes. Sure. And like I say, you need a load of money to do that. But at the same time, God, it's great. So, so Owen, if you're listening. <laughs> Hopefully he is. Thank you. Wow. We should be saying Shout thank you as well. Shout out to Owen. I mean, it sounds, it's, it sounds like a paradox that a larger budget production would have less takes to do the thing that they're trying to achieve. It's not so Look, I mean, it's also, look, you know, look, I mean, in a, in a way of, of kind of always think of a film crew as kind of like water in the respect that in terms of time, they sure. will just fill the available space. Yeah. You know, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes you really do rap early and there are certain directors who often rap early yeah. and the crew adore them for obvious reasons. 
but they also adore them because it means they know exactly what they want. They're just on it. They're mm. normally sort of seasoned professionals sure. and there's no wastage. They're not shooting superfluous shots. Mm. You know, you're not doing stuff where you're thinking this is never going to make it into the edit, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the same time on something like brave new world, there was, you know, every time you shoot a lot of any scene that has VFX in, <clears throat> you shoot the scene, you shoot the setup on the scene, the camera position. Once you've got it, the VFX people then have to move in mm. and they've got to then take shots of a kind of a color, a, like a color board, like a, like a, you know, I, I'm now I don't really know what I'm talking about. I just color board, do it. white board. <laughs> it's a board with lots yeah. of colors on it, sure. um, which they need, you know, which the computer needs to see to do whatever it does there's a ball that has like a reflective side on one side and then like a matte side on the other side and they kind of oh shoot yeah the we've ball seen one of those flip mm -hmm. yeah. they shoot that think, they shoot that i think it's called there's rotoscoping there you go boom <laughs> um they may actually have to sh shoot shots of of the scene on a kind of like a digital slr camera and da, da, da. Sure. so and plus you know when you've got expensive stuff it just takes longer to set it up. You know, if you've got one light, well, that, that's never going to take an awful long time to, to light your shot. Oh, should we put it there? Should we put it there? Let's put it there. We're lit. But if you've got three trucks out on, you know, on the side of, outside the soundstage full of lamps, well, the world's your oyster. You know, it could take you an hour and a half to relight the shot, you know, da-da-da. So actually, weirdly, on low-budget stuff, you know, you 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 go much faster on low budget stuff because there's just less variables and you can shoot seven pages in a day yeah. and not feel that you know you're racing to keep up and on a on something bigger you can shoot two pages and and think we're never going to complete today oh jesus we're never going to get through this and you think oh we're shooting two pages uh, you know, you expand to fill the available time. So you've obviously just spoken with a lot of admiration for the director of Brave New World. And earlier on, you he were was, talking... He was only one of the directors. The others were also terrific, but Owen kicked it off and he happened to be particularly mm. into the working with the actors thing. Just, I'll just say that. Go on. But I mean it as well. Go on, go on. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, highlighting his method of working with the actors. And earlier on, you were talking about films that inspired you, um, Blade Runner, Paper Moon, and you were talking about them in very visual terms. So I wondered, with your visual appreciation of film and your analysis of what a successful director is doing, have you ever wanted to direct yourself? Um, yes, is the answer. Um, <clears throat> I mean, one of the things I like about my job is that I just wait for the phone to ring, essentially, and someone say, here's a job. And then I go, great. And I learn my lines and do my work and then turn up and I do it. Um, but that said, I do sort of have this urge. I, haven't, I, have, I do have an urge to direct. But the truth is, despite having been on a lot of film sets and watched a lot of films... I've never kind of, I'm going to contradict myself here. I've never kind of really, 
consciously thought about the process of filmmaking. I find it absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I am one of those actors and there aren't that many of them in my experience who like to just hang out on the set. So, you know, when you rehearse the scene and watch get lighting in please lighting in you know grips getting if you need to lay some track well our first shot is going to be a wide over here art department i know you said you've got to finish off a bit over there so you get in and do that everyone else just clear out we're going to be about 20 minutes we're going to light for 20 minutes and everyone just goes outside and has a fag cup of tea has a chat whatever i actually like to just stay on the set and watch them and i also i'm kind of quite annoying particularly to camera departments because I'll go, I will say, why have you done that? Why aren't we doing that? But won't that mean, oh, I see. So when you did it last time, why was it? Oh, right. Oh, that's clever. I'll do a lot of that. <laughs> and, you know, they kind of tolerate me. But I suspect that half the time they're like, Gosh, just, can you just like do the fucking talking bit and just leave us alone. But I find the whole process of filmmaking fascinating. I really do. And actually not just the camera department all the elements because you know when you yes when you know when you see how the you know how the omelette gets made um or the sausage i should say maybe uh it's 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 yeah it's i find it absolutely fascinating at the same time my dad once directed a film uh this is sort of in parentheses my dad once directed a film um a film of his play Rosencrantz, Guildenstern are dead. I've seen it. Oh, I saw you that. That's um, uh, Gary Oldman and, um, and Tim Roth. Yeah. Tim Roth, yeah. That's Tim amazing. Roth, yeah, yeah it's, it's, you know, it's actually a really great movie. And his script of the play is actually a really good adaptation. He added elements in. Um, but, you know, he was lucky enough to be able to phone people like Steven Spielberg and Sidney Pollock and Mike Nichols and go... So I'm making a film, I'm directing a film. What do I do? Um, and I remember him telling me that they said, uh, get a great DOP, sort of obvious, but, and they said, get the best first assistant director you can find. Ooh. And the first assistant director runs the set. He's kind of like the factory foreman. Um, so he's just making sure that we keep moving. Everyone's doing their job. People aren't, you know, dropping stuff, figuratively speaking, um, or even literally. And, <clears throat> you know, a good first AD will help you to complete every single day's filming. And a bad one, you'll be dropping shots and even entire scenes day after day after day after day. And it will cost you money and it will cost you in the edit. And so, you know, one day I would actually would love to direct something and I would have to get the best camera operator and DOP I could possibly find and the best first assistant director because there are big gaps in my knowledge. There really are big gaps in my knowledge. And there's a great, um, there are, there's one in particular, but I know there's more than one YouTube, I guess it's a YouTube channel. It's called Every Frame a Painting. Mm. And it's this editor, he's an American. And he takes you through these little 10 minute short films 
elements of filmmaking and any of your listeners who've never seen it just click on it go onto youtube type in every frame of painting or every frame of picture i think it's every frame of painting i'll double check and, oh my god man they are yeah. fascinating uh, like there's one one of them is on something called the spielberg wanna and it's spielberg often in his films he does there's one shot where he does it's not a steady cam shot quite often it's shot on a dolly but the camera is a single take and it takes in various elements and it's not like a miss it doesn't feel like a single shot because it moves from a wide into a two into a close-up back out into a mid shot and then maybe finishes on a kind of raked sort of two shot on two actors and then you're out or something. It feels like a combination of shots that have been cut together is one single take. That's one of his little 10, 12 minute things. And they're absolutely flipping brilliant. They are works of art in themselves. And it's those elements, you know, how choice of, lens quite simply put the lens you choose there's a great one on the cohen brothers it's a great one on david fincher there's a great one on david fincher and i think it's called it's called it's i think it's called david fincher and the other way is wrong it's sort of brilliant it's uh, you know and it's kind of yeah um so i have to watch all of those and much more besides because and, and, you know, and figure out that part of, of a director's job, which is how am I... Te- I'm used to telling the story from the actor's perspective, just from the character's perspective. The director has to tell the story. He's got many more tools, many more media, many more directions from which and with which he can tell the story. So I'd, I would absolutely have to learn about that, really, before... I mean, I could sort of do it by just making little short films for no money and just making mistakes and then going, oh, shit, I wish I'd actually shot that like this. Here's a great example. I love you. I know you guys like examples. We do. I'm going to give yeah. you a great example. And it it's, ties in because it's from, the, it's from A Handmaid's Tale. There's a shot in the first season of A Handmaid's Tale where uh, she's just had, you know, for spoiler alert, but Joseph Fiennes has had sex with her for sort of the first or second time. And they're all hopeful that she's pregnant, right? That's, that's I mean, like, that is the plot. But you're, you know, I'm not really That's not it. a spoiler. That that's is the spoiler. premise. And she, she comes into this kind of conservatory on the side of the kitchen in the home where she's a prisoner, and there's a long, long dining table. And she's, and the, the cook, who has been not very nice to her so far, comes up to her and is really nice and sort of says, can I get you some breakfast? And sits her at the head of the table. Mm-hmm. The camera is all the way down the other end of the table. So you, we're looking down the length of the table. It's a wide shot. You see the whole of the kitchen in the background. It's a big, long, wide room. We see the whole room, deep into the room. And there is Elizabeth Moss, sat at the end of the table. She's central in the frame, kind of smallish because the frame is big. And it's a single shot and it lasts about four or five minutes. First of all, the cook, 
Then Joseph finds wife, who has been very antagonistic towards her up to this point, comes in, and she is very attentive, and she's very um, kind of conscientious. And Elizabeth Moss is confused. She doesn't understand why these people have been nasty to her are suddenly being nice to her. Mm. And normally, the normal way to shoot that scene <clears throat> would be to shoot the wide, start with the wide, so the audience knows where we are. We know, I see we're in this room, we're in this, okay, I've got the geography of the room, got it. But then, generally speaking, you want to see the characters' faces because that's where you get the most information is from the characters' faces. So you cut in and use your coverage and mid shots, tight shots, close-ups, all that jazz. They never cut. You stay on the wide. You can always see Elizabeth Moss's face, although she's sort of smallish in the frame, but the wife sits down facing Elizabeth Moss. So you kind of just get an edge of her face. She's essentially got her back to you. The cook is in profile. And again, she's kind of quite distant. So you can't really gauge what's going on. I think maybe a third character comes in. And again, you don't really see them properly because there's no coverage. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand. I, I need to see the wife's face because I'm not reading. I don't know what her subtext is. I'm not. And we got to the end of the scene and my poor wife has to endure this shit all the time. <laughs> I leapt up and paused it. I went, oh my God, do you know what they just did? And she went, no, what did they just do? And I went, we now, the audience, feel, like her. feel what Elizabeth Moss's character is feeling. Yeah. We feel her confusion. We as the audience are confused. We mm. don't know what is going on. We can't read the scene. Elizabeth yeah. Moss' character, she can't read the scene because she can't read the subtext of the other characters. Yeah. They're presenting something, but she's unaware of their subtext and it's confusing to her. And we as the audience were deprived of the subtext by the filmmaker, by the mm. director and by the scriptwriter. And so what they've done, they've married the writing and the filming of the scene to, to almost literally put us inside her character. Mm. It's incredible. one of the most, it, you know, it's one of those handful of moments mm. as where I, you know, that I've had watching drama on a screen and just gone, Oh, oh. my God. Mm. Um, and so it's that kind of thing. If yeah. I'd shot that scene, I'd have just shot it on the coverage. Yeah. I can imagine another... I would have just shot, oh, I guess, how oh, would we shoot the coverage? Now, maybe in the edit, I'd have gone, fuck, yeah. no, we don't need the coverage. But yeah. guess what? Talking about, you know, money and the time that stuff takes. Let's say, let's be, you know, let's say they shot four takes on that camera setup. Now... Mm. I'm pretty confident that the director said, I'm only going to, sh I'm going to shoot this in one take from this wide position. And that is going to be the scene. He didn't shoot a load of coverage and then dump it in the edit. He never shot the coverage or she never mm. shot the coverage. So let's say they shot four takes, right? It's a four minute take. That's 16 minutes. Let's double that time for, hair and makeup coming in, doing some checks, a little bit. They don't even have to reset the camera. The camera's locked off. The camera never moves. There's no focus point. No, there's nothing. 
There's no focus mark. You know, once they've taken the one focus mark, that's it. There's no focus pull is just sat there with flipping arms crossed. He's not doing shit. He's having a coffee. The operator's not doing anything. The camera's locked off. The operator's having a coffee. They're pressing record and walking away. So what I'm saying is that that shot for maybe even five minutes of screen time, right? On a show like Handmaid's Tale, on different days, you might shoot two minutes. So it might take you two and a half days to get that five minutes of finished product, right? Two and a half days of filming at $150,000 a day or whatever. That director gave the producers of Handmaid's Tale five minutes of screen time and he got it by 11 a.m. type thing. Like that wow. again, that actually, at the risk of being a bit profane, it gives me a, it gives me a semi. I'm, mm. I'm slightly erect at the thought of that. I fucking <laughs> love that. I absolutely fucking love it because, God, why do I love it? Because it's, this machine which i am a small part of called a film set working to absolute perfect efficiency it can work in you know it can also work you know can also work in that way where all of the departments they're all doing their job just to the absolute nth degree and da, 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 it's all coming together but in this occasion they actually made it wonderfully efficient by stripping it back um you know, and making it efficient in, in the way that a, a wheel is efficient or something. Um, but, the, but also just the alchemy, in a way, of doing this on the surface, extremely simple thing, which enabled the audience to have a level of connection to the TV show they're watching which is so hard to achieve. And actually they did it not by bells and whistles, but by actually being incredibly clever and having great vision and actually having great guts, having the guts to go, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is another good example of this. Just having the guts of going, no, I'm just going to do it like this. And that is going to give me everything I need to tell the story that I want to tell right now. Now, you don't get a second chance on a film set. You know, when you're doing a play, you know, you can have a revelation in week six of an eight week run and you can go, oh, shit, that's how I'm supposed to play that moment or that scene or my entire performance. Well, at least I've got another 16 shows. There isn't there aren't, you know, on one job in 20 years has a producer said you shot it wrong we've got to go back and reshoot that scene because the way you've shot it is wrong mm. um i hasten to add it's not a scene i was in um <laughs> but but that's the only time i can remember it's happened you know you if something technical goes wrong you have to go back and reshoot it but not because the way you shot it is not how it needs to be shot Anyway, so those things, I'd love to direct one day, but I really ought to brush up on my skill set, you know, so that, so that I have the, the imagination to say, Elizabeth, 
I'm only going to shoot this in one. I'm going to set the camera down here. It's wide. We're going to let it roll. That's how I'm, that's how I want to tell the story because I want the audience to be as disorientated as you are and watch Elizabeth Moscow. You're a genius. Thank you so much. <laughs> Those moments. Yeah. I loved how you told that anecdote, by the way, because I realised the reason they'd done that uh, exactly. You know know the scene I'm talking about? Yeah, I love the show. Yeah, Right. Well, if you want, go back and watch that scene. And her character is just, she's desperately trying. She's desperately trying to grasp information and she can't get it because it's not there for her to grasp. And as you, the audience, you're going, give me more information, give me more information. It's not there, it's not there. And then you realize, oh my God, I am, in this moment, I'm offered. I'm feeling what she's feeling. Mm. Essentially, you become E.T. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like that? You got a lot of Yeah, yeah love brilliant. it. You I feel just want- what she feels. Isn't that the whole USP of E.T., isn't it? It is. Yeah, he yeah, doesn't yeah. think what Elliot thinks. He feels, or Elliot, no, oh, well, fuck, it's the other way around, isn't it? <laughs> You're Elliot then. Whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean. Go. But you, you were also right about, it is the YouTube channel is called Every Frame of Painting. It's been around since yeah. uh, 2014. And oh, it man, seems he's, like he's two, it's two filmmakers, but I think it's originally by someone called Tony Zhu, spelled right. Z-H-O-U. So That's I'm assuming right. that he's a filmmaker, director in his own right. He's and an he's editor. Up, sorry, he's an editor. Thank you. He's an editor. And it looks like he's teamed he's up with another colleague called Taylor Ramos to create more right. content. But yeah, they seem to have like a significant deep dive into how and why films were shot and recorded in the well, way they, that do, they, they just They take one element and mm. just kind of have a really good look at it. Mm. I mean, yeah. But he does it... And the other thing is, look, he's an editor. So, shocker, he knows how yeah. to edit together skillfully 10 minutes of footage. Of, and of, analyze you know, it. Yeah. Like a ten, he knows how to make a really good 10-minute film, 10-minute short documentary. Um, but it is so revealing. It's so revealing. And, you know, your admiration for David Fincher and the Coens and Paul Thomas Anderson and Spielberg and all the rest of them. But, like, he also does one called Bayhem, about how Michael, Michael Bay. Bay makes his films, but actually how certain parts of it work really well. Ed, before we come to the end of this interview, is it possible you could let us know uh, where we can find you on social media and perhaps even the social media for your new series? Yes, um, I am on Instagram uh, at Ed Stoppard Actor. Uh, I must admit my 15 year old daughter began on my behalf when I was shooting Nightfall um, and I ignored it. And uh, it's only really in the last God, 12 months, maybe even less that I've actually done it in earnest. Um, But anyway, I am on Instagram at Ed Stoppard actor Um, and brave new world. uh, You can find it at, at Peacock TV, which is the production company. Um, and I think maybe even hashtag Brave New World, which is capital B, capital N, capital W. Cool. Um, I think, geez, I think that's all I've got. I don't know how. Yeah. Oh, or hashtag Peacock TV. That would yeah. also work, I think. Yeah. Thank you. 
And uh, Brave New World is going to be available to view on this uh, new streaming service from NBC Universal from the 15th of July. Um, and that will be including the UK and the USA as well. Aha. Uh-huh. Very good. 15th of July. Okay. I did know it was 15th of July. I didn't know when it was going to be in the UK, but maybe you're right. You seem to know more about this than I do, which doesn't surprise me. Yeah, well, uh, there's, a, there's an IMDb uh, page, and um, it's releasing in Australia, Brazil, Canada, Czech Republic, France, Italy, Russia, Slovakia, Spain, UK, and USA, all on the 15th of July. Oh, okay. Oh, fair enough. Okay, good. Oh, I can't wait to see it then. <laughs> I can't wait to see you in it either, so thank you for telling us so much about it. Thanks, Trevor. Pleasure. And thank you, Dom. You're very welcome. So that was our Geek Sweat inspiration interview. And for once, I don't think that is too strong a word to say. It has been absolutely inspirational. So thank you to my co-presenter, TJ Trevor Jones. I've been King Dom. But thank you most of all to our very special guest for a very wide-ranging and informative interview. Thank you to Ed Stoppard. Very welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. 